Psalm 33 this morning, beginning in verse 1. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to Him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From His dwelling place He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all. He who understands all their works. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory. Nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. On those who hope for His loving kindness. To deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let Your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in You. Let's pray. Father, as we have done so this morning, we sing praise to the name of the Lord. We worship You, Lord. We give thanks to You for Your loving kindness. Father, for Your greatness, for Your righteousness and justice. And we are reminded again this morning, Father, of the wonder of Your name, the splendor of Your works, the power of Your Word. Lord, as we read through this psalm and consider its meaning, the depth of it today, I pray, Father, that You will shift our hearts even more so after You. That there would be, Father, deep level change in us where there needs to be. And Lord, fortification of the places of our hearts that are strong in faith and hungry to worship You. God, we look forward to the day when that is what we will always do. Worship You. Holy Spirit, teach us through Your Word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 1647, 107 questions were written out in a series to educate people in matters of doctrine and faith. Some of you know the name of this. It's called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Now, personally, I think the only catechism we need is the Word of God. But the idea behind it was a group of people saying we need to get people educated. People need to understand what it is they believe. Not just show up at church and listen, but know themselves. And these questions were developed for that purpose, to to get people thinking about their faith, to understand their faith more, to encourage people into the Word of God. The number one question, the one that's probably most famous out of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is this, what is the chief end of man? The answer, the chief end of man is to worship God and enjoy Him forever. And with that, they nailed it. But what does that mean? To worship God. Our attitudes of worship have changed so much, so much over the years. We live in a day and age now where the idea of worshiping God is is many and, and various within the church. How do I worship God? People have different perspectives. Some would say, you know, it's, it's the social gospel. You worship God through your works, through your kindness, through your acts of goodness, through serving out in the world. There are others who say, no, no, it's attitudes of thankfulness. That's how you worship God. Some would say, it's just an ongoing awareness of the presence of Jesus. Hey, these are all good things. 
But we need to get back to something and be absolutely clear about this. When the Bible talks about worship, it uses the word, the Hebrew word shakah. And shakah means to physically bow down and pay homage. It is critical we understand this word, to physically bow down and pay homage. When the Bible uses the word shaka, the word worship, it's not talking about getting out and doing things on a social level. It's not talking about just being somewhere that makes you feel like you're in God's presence. It's not about hiking to the height of a mountain and, and, and just enjoying nature. It's a very specific word to bow down in honor. The examples of worship in Scripture, every single one put a person on their knees, bowing down on their face, actively praising God. That is what worship means. First and foremost, the first time it's mentioned in the Bible, Genesis 22, verse 5, Abraham and his son Isaac are about to head up Mount Moriah where Abraham will sacrifice Isaac. And he says to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there. We will worship and return to you. The understanding was not that they were going to have a campfire. The understanding was we are going to go bow down before God. We are going to actively worship. Exodus 34 verse 8, a little further down the line. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. Why? Well, because God was about to wipe out the people. And Moses' immediate response there was not to go and start serving, getting the people involved in campaigns. It was worship. Just worship. Joshua chapter 5, verse 14. Joshua comes face to face with a man. Joshua says, are you for us? Are you against us? And the man says, no. <laughs> I'm not for you. I'm not against you. I am who I am. He says, I come indeed now as captain of the Lord of hosts. It was Jesus, I'm convinced. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down. The word there, shakah, worshipped. He worshipped. 1 Chronicles 29, verse 20, David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God. Then all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed low and did homage to the Lord and to the king. Shakah. They worshipped. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 6 tells us, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen. While, listen, lifting up their hands, they bowed low, they worshipped the Lord with their faces on the ground. So when someone says, I prefer to go fishing, and no offense, Zane, or my father-in-law, or those of you who love to fish, but when someone says, Sunday morning, I fish, that's my worship. In a way, they're right, because you've got to bow down to pull the fish up in the net. <laughs> and it's fish worship, is what it is. It's watered down worship. <laughs> Think about it. Wasn't it David who said somewhere, Lord, save me from the net? I don't know. So I'm not against fishing, per se, and maybe I should scale this back a bit. But seriously, <laughs> when I think... <laughs> You did, Carol. This is this is what you uh, this is what you need here. Seriously, when I say, you know, there are all kinds of ways to worship God. I just prefer to worship Him my way. Well, I'm assuming my way is better than His. <coughs> Who am I honoring, my Savior or my sensibilities? What glorifies Him or what makes me feel good in my life? Worship, gang, worship is bowing down and lifting up praise to the Father. You can do that by yourself. You can do it in a small group. You can do it in the assembled body. But worship is what it is, and it is a big deal to the Lord. The Psalms are unique in all Scripture. We've been seeing this. They're intensely emotional. They're incredibly personal. And I believe they are intentional for the purpose of pulling us out of bogus personal assumptions about what worship really is. The Psalms are here to draw us from our religious presuppositions. Because, gang, among us, we've got 2,000 years of religion here that has taught us what worship is supposed to be. And I've done a lot of thinking about worship over the years. In, In my role as a pastor, what is it supposed to look like? How are we supposed to act? How do we keep from getting out of control? How do we get ourselves out of being stolid and boring and dull? What is worship supposed to be? We have these, what I would call, denominational precautions when it comes to worship. 
You know, I was getting a little little uh, uppity this morning. You know, getting a little excitable here. Just be careful. Why? Who am I honoring? My Savior or my sensibilities? Again, worship is a big deal to the Lord. How do you know that? Well, in the Psalms alone, 150 songs and prayers, worship is commanded, the word shakah, 17 times. The word praise is applied 166 times. Bless is used 108 times directly to the Lord. Sing another 86 times. Even the invitation to shout shows up 27 times. When was the last time you shouted to the Lord? <laughs> I haven't heard it in the barn. I mean, I'm not trying to offend or anything, but that's, that's somewhere we haven't gone. Woohoo! Praise the Lord! I mean, if you did that, we might have to have an elder escort you out you know, to go fishing or something. But this is an active book that is set down to shape up our worship. And we best pay attention because as I said a couple weeks ago, we're going to be doing this for eternity, folks. So let's see how God wants us to worship. What is worship, bowing down, praise, and honor to the Lord? What does it look like? Now, Psalm 33 is a great call to worship on three levels at least. Globally, and nationally, and personally. The Father calls us to a place of worship. Now, the name of the psalmist, you might notice, is not given at all here. I personally think it's David. Primarily because it's so well connected to Psalm 32, which we read about last week. Psalm 32, which ends with this phrase, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. And verse 1 of Psalm 33 begins, Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. There's a connection just in the wording and in the language of these two psalms, a lyrical connection that makes me assume it probably is David. But we don't know for sure. And honestly, it doesn't really matter. Because in Psalm 33, the human author is irrelevant. It really has nothing to do with him. All the human author is doing here is laying down words that we might lift up glory, honor, worship to the Father. So, as far as that goes, it's almost better we have no personal data or background on the author. Because we'd go back, as we've done several times already, we would go back to the history of it. We'd look at the person, we'd look at his heart, and we'd try to understand it through the lens of the personality of the writer. Not Psalm 33. Because this psalm is a call to worship for the righteous ones of the Lord. And you might say, that counts me out. Are you one of the righteous ones of the Lord? Spencer and I are having a conversation about this. You know, what, is, what does that mean to be the, one of the righteous ones? To live a life that is literally changed, redeemed from what it was to what it is now. Are you one of the righteous ones? You are if your life has been redeemed by Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter how dark it's been. And it doesn't matter how long it's taken. And it doesn't matter where you've come from. If your life is redeemed by Jesus Christ, you are one of the righteous ones. Look around. You are sitting beside some of the righteous ones of the Lord. Wow. I mean, that's amazing. It stunned me on Wednesday night because we kind of had the same conversation. The holy ones of God. Right here in this barn. And it's you. And it's me. And it should just honor us to be around other people who are considered righteous by God. Righteous ones, this is your song. And by the way, if you haven't been born again... If you've never given your life to Jesus, if you don't know where you stand with God, you're going to learn something about why it is that we must worship. Why worship is so supremely important to believers in Jesus. Watch this. Picking up in verse 2. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to Him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. This is the first time musical instruments are listed, mentioned in the Psalms. And you can say that, say that verse 3 stands kind of as a confirmation to all musicians to play well. To play to the best of their ability when worshiping the Lord. Play skillfully. But it's more than just an admonition to musicians. It's for every worshiper of the Lord. That you are called, whether you can play an instrument or not, sing or not, some might say, well, I can't sing. Much less play an instrument. How am I supposed to play skillfully? Can you make a joyful noise? Because that's listed 
27 times in the Psalms, shout for joy, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Lest the joy and the wonder and the praise that is bound up in the heart burst forth in worship to the Father. Let the joy be real and tangible. You may not be able to play an instrument skillfully, but you can worship skillfully. How, how this works is, gang, it has more to do with preparation than it does ability. To be able to play skillfully requires preparation. It requires a readiness. Our worship team rehearses so that we don't just get up here and clunk through a bunch of songs. Play skillfully. Come prepared at a heart level to give the Lord your best. Do you think about worship that way when you get up Sunday morning? I am preparing to play skillfully before the Lord. I'm getting ready today to go and worship. Do you come prepared to sing for joy in the Lord, as the psalmist writes? Give thanks to the Lord. Sing praises to Him. Sing to Him a new song. You might think, well, Pastor Rick, he's got to be prepared for Sunday morning. You've got to be prepared for Sunday morning. For Wednesday night, a heart-level preparation to play skillfully in worship to the Lord. Jesus told a great parable, the parable of the wedding feast. You may recall it. In which all manner of people are invited from the highways and byways and alleyways into a celebration of the wedding of the king's son to his bride. And the parallels are obvious. Jesus and the church. God loving His people. God the King wanting this marriage feast to be celebrated. And it will be, Revelation 19 tells us. And people from all manner of life, from the lowest of the alleys to the highest of the highways, people invited in because the original people refused the invitation. And so the Lord throws it out to everyone. But there's an interesting twist in this story. One of these guys shows up at the wedding feast, and we're told in Matthew 22.11, when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. You know what the king did to him? He booted him out. I never thought that was fair. You know, growing up, I'd read that, and I guess it's not really, I mean, poor little guy, you know, probably shuffled in out of the alleys. Some little homeless guy. He's there at the feast having the nicest food he's probably had in weeks. And the king comes up and says, boy, you look shabby, you're out of here. Well, understand that in Jewish custom and culture, wedding clothes were always available at the door to those who couldn't afford them. There was only one reason why this guy was not wearing the wedding clothes at the wedding feast. What was that? He didn't want to. He had his own personal sensibilities. He wanted to wear what he was wearing. He was comfortable in his own clothes. And the king booted him out the door. And to sum up the whole parable, Jesus says, Many are called, few are chosen. Harsh? Unfair? What Jesus is saying, gang, if you're going to come, come prepared. If you're going to come, come prepared. Dressed to worship. I've got to be honest with y'all. It's not far nearly so uh, obvious or difficult in here as it is second hour. But when worship begins, and we get into the first song, and then we're into the second song, and then the third song, and people are talking and laughing and wandering around and getting you know, muffins in the back, coming in late, after worship has started, I have to ask the question, are we coming in prepared to worship? You know what? We know what time this starts. And please, I'm not trying to rebuke anybody, but we know. We start at 8 o'clock, or we start at 10.45. We know when it begins, and our worship team doesn't always start on time anyway. We usually give a couple of minutes of grace there. But once the music begins, are we here to worship God? Are we prepared to worship the Lord? Be careful, Pastor. You don't want to offend or turn anyone off. You know, that would be the wrong move. Hey, I would rather offend you than offend the God of my salvation. And I think it's time for us as a church to say, what is most important when we gather? He is. And then we'll hang out afterwards and have coffee and enjoy fellowship. But when we come, we come to worship. And if it bothers me, what do you think it does to Him? When the praise has begun, and the people are just ruthless. I mean this with the best intentions for all of us. When we come to worship... 
Come prepared to play skillfully, joyfully, with every beat of the heart, focused on the Lord, or don't come. It's okay. Just don't come. But when you come, come to worship. Let's ask the real question here. Why is worship so important to God? Why does this matter to Him so much? I've actually heard people question the motives of God when it comes to worship. I usually give them a couple extra feet for lightning, but when they ask this... People have said, and you may have heard this too, is it just that God wants a bunch, bunch of, you know, slathering, boot-licking sycophants? You know, people kissing up to Him to make Him feel better about Himself. I mean, isn't that really what your God asks for worship for? That's a very human perspective. That might be what you or I would want. You know, if we commanded everybody to worship, it would, it would be to lift us up and to make us feel good about who we are. Hey, listen, you can't make God feel better about Himself. Because it doesn't get any better than God. He is beyond, He is absolute perfection. How do you make perfection feel better? How do you lift perfection up higher than perfection already is? He is perfect in loving kindness. He is perfect in faithfulness, in righteousness, in justice, across the board. He's perfect love, perfect light, perfect joy, perfect everything. We can't make Him feel better than that. That is not why we worship. Look at Psalm 36, just a couple psalms over. We looked at it Wednesday night. Verse 5, it's a song we sing. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. I mean, that's awesome. We don't worship to make God feel better. So why is our praise so important to Him? Well, the psalmist begins to illuminate that for us. I mentioned there's a global perspective, a national perspective, and a personal perspective. The global perspective, or the basis of praise, is verse 4. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. The basis of worship. Why should I worship Him? The psalmist says, listen to the words of his mouth. Look at the work of his hand. Look at creation. You want a reason to worship God? Just look around. I mean, that alone should blow our minds and throw us to our knees. It's amazing, stunning. There are not words to describe the beauty, the splendor of creation. Maybe you've seen the BBC series Planet Earth or the Disney version of the same thing, that seeks to elevate the glory, the beauty, the wonder of earth within the earth itself, as opposed to looking at the Creator and saying, wow, look at what God did. Look at what He continues to do. Look at how He preserves man and beast, and how He keeps this world on its axis. Look at the wonders of God. Verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Why? The basis of praise. Because of what He's done. The word of His mouth. The work of His hands. I like this phrase. He gathers the water of the sea together as a heap. It's a marvelous recognition of a scientific phenomenon of creation. If you've driven down West Beach Road and you get down there where it's, where it's real low, and there are houses like Does anyone have a house there along the low end of West Beach? Good. Idiots, what are they doing? <laughs> you know, you got signs. Typhoon warning zone or, you know, tsunami warning zone. What? And that's my vacation house. <laughs> you drive along the road and it actually seems as though the sea level is higher than the road. He gathers the waters together in a heap. Listen, when you pour a glass of water, and you've probably tried this. My wife does it all the time with Diet Pepsi, not to any success because it always overflows. But if you fill up a glass of water to the very top, you know what it does. It doesn't sit right at the level. It heaps. It sits above the level. The seas do the same thing. The created world, it's a wonder. It doesn't make sense 
by the way we would think. Kyle and Delich say the display of his power in the waters of the sea consists in his having confined them within fixed bounds and keeping them within these. Like such a heap do the convex waters of the sea, being firmly held together, rise above the level of its continents. Now that's interesting. But what is the underlying message of creation to the created? Why does God, and why does this, invite me to worship God? Why is it that creation invites me to worship? Listen, Clark is into glass blowing. And I've seen some of his work. So has my wife. She wants it. <laughs> and and he blows glass vases and, and urns and sculptures. And it's, it's absolutely, it's pretty astounding. And this guy sits here every Sunday. No one knows. But comes up with some beautiful things. Now, what would happen if, if Clark came up to you and, and handed you one of his bowls? Absolutely beautiful, glass-blown bowl. And you took it and you went, wow, billions of years of evolutionary process sure can work wonders. (laughs) Now, Clark might roll his eyes and think you're nuts. He might be offended. But the truth is, he'd likely point out to you that he made it for you. Why? Why is it important that you know he made the bowl that he handed to you? Why is it important that we know God created the earth on which we live? Because if we don't know that, we miss the gesture of His love. We completely miss the fact that God's saying, but I, this is from me to you. I gave this to you. I didn't give it to you so you'd go, oh, great God. I gave it to you so you'd realize what a great love. And the basis of our praise is right there, gang, that we recognize what He's done, the word of His mouth, the work of His hands, and see how great the Father's love for us. God wants to draw out our praise, not so that He feels loved, but because you cannot worship Him without recognizing His love. And in recognizing His love, oh, it begins to change us. It alters our view. Paul said in Ephesians 3.18, I pray that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And worship, my friends, saturates the Spirit with the love of God. Have you ever recognized that? That while you're worshiping Him either bowed down or singing praises or however you're worshiping, that you just feel loved. You feel loved because you're recognizing a Father who loves you in worship. And that is right at the very basis of worship, the recognition of His gesture of love. By the way, His gesture didn't stop there. The Word and the works of the Lord. Because at the cross, the Word of God extended the gesture of love from one wing of the cross to the other, displaying the mightiest work of God in all history, not in creation, but in redemption. The work and the Word displayed there on the cross because God loves you. He loves me. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His own love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the basis of worship. Right there. Go on in verse 12. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsels or the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord the people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance. Number two, we've seen the basis of worship. We are now given the bastion of worship. This is the national perspective. The basis was more global, universal, creation, all that God has done. And now, on a national level, the bastion of praise. Repeat this verse after me, would you? Verse 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. One more time. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Amen. I'll tell you what, the indication of this verse is for the people of Israel. Because he says, the, the people, you know, the chose people whom he has chosen for his inheritance. So it's indicating Israel. That's the indication. But the application is for any nation whose God is the Lord. The bastion, the strength, the fortress of praise. Listen. 
and I don't mean to offend anybody in, your, in our patriotism, but it was not the Revolutionary War that you know, we celebrated on the 4th of July. It wasn't the Revolutionary War that, that gave us all the goodness of America. It wasn't the signing of the Declaration of Independence. It wasn't the Constitution that brought the flood of God's blessing to our nation. The sole reason, and we've talked about this recently, was that the Founding Fathers declared God as the Lord of this nation. And because they declared that, God said, I can bless that. Because blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And not just any God, the Lord. Yahweh, He's named. Blessed is the nation for whom Yahweh is the Lord. Did you know 12 of the 13 original colonies in their charters had the Ten Commandments included in their entirety? Did you know that the pilgrims, when they came across on the Mayflower, after weeks of disease and distress and death and hard times and sickness and famine and difficulty, sailed across, landed there, and the first thing they did was not disembark. They stayed on board the ship for an entire day. Why? Worshipping the Lord. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The first building that was erected there in Jamestown, in the first colony, that building was a church. Before the people had homes and businesses and structures up, they built first a church, a house of worship, a place they could gather and worship the Lord. And by the way, the only wall standing from that first colony belongs to that first church today. William Penn. You may remember William Penn, founder of Pennsylvania. He wrote the following. In the Pennsylvania Charter, the treasurer, judges, and all other elected officials must profess a sincere faith in Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that change government today? As we have some placing their hand on the Koran. There's only one reason why America has been the most prosperous nation in the history of the world. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Now, I'm sure I would get a rousing amen if I said, Folks, it's time to take back America for Jesus. Amen. See? (laughs) But, I believe there's only one way to do that. And I'm not against political rallies. And I'm not against involvement. And I'm not against getting out there and standing up for the Lord. But I'll tell you what, the one way, if you want to take back this nation for Jesus Christ, the one way you can best do it is worship. You did it this morning. Worship the Lord. Active, personal, intentional, no-holds-barred worship. Conservative pundits say, we've got to get back to the Constitution. Well, I believe we do, but it's not the key to saving America. Worship is the key. Listen, the original Boston Tea Party, remember what that was about? No taxation without representation. What kind of representation did Jesus have in the government of Rome? In fact, you recall they came to him saying, should we pay Caesar's poll tax? They tried to catch him in that because none of the Jews wanted to pay any taxes to Caesar. And Matthew 22.20, Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Whose face is on the dollar bill? George Washington. My friends, some of you are going to hate me for this. Render to Washington the things that are Washington's. Well, that sounds a little crazy. Caesar's image was on the coin in Jesus' day. Washington's image on the dollar bill in our day. Whose image are we invited to have stamped on our hearts? Christ Jesus. He is our pursuit. He is our desire. And the worship of the Lord is where it's at. Romans 8.29, the Lord, Paul writes, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that we would be firstborn among many brethren. You want to take back America? Worship. Because worship is where it happens. At a heart level, that's where things begin to change. That's where God begins to look at a people and say, I will bless the people. I will bless the nation whose God is the Lord. Verse 13, the Lord looks from heaven. 
He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, who understands all their works. God is looking. He is looking at our nation. He is looking at His church. He is looking at this fellowship. But God is not looking for revolutionaries. Or strict constitutionalists. Certainly not socialist, communists, or political activists. What is God looking for? Worshippers. Now, if your political activism is driven by your passion for God and your love for Him, okay, I get that. But don't bypass the worship of God to be active in the political scene. Because you have just bypassed the one saving grace of America. Worship of the God. Who, last time I looked, it was still in God we trust. John 4.23 tells us an hour is coming. And now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Lord seeks to be His worshipers. Again, why is this so important? Because worship is the one of the one true God conforms us to His image. When worship is the basis of our praise, you know, it helps us to recognize, to, to actually take in the gesture of His love. But again, the bastion of our praise. Worship conforms us to His image. Our strength, our support, our hope, our help is in the image of God. It is in God Himself and nowhere else. It is not in a movement. It will never be in a movement that we are saved but only in our Maker. I think worshiping God is the most patriotic thing you can do. And i got to tell you, last week I was so blessed. Fourth of July Sunday. And I just didn't know what to expect. I even said that last week, if you recall. I wasn't sure if we would have you know, a lot of people here, people out doing you know, the things, busy with the fourth. I was so blessed to see this place packed out. Because you made a choice last week to begin celebration of this country with the worship of its founder. With the worship of God. And this morning, not just here, but everywhere, the good news is there are the righteous ones of God, the redeemed, who are worshiping Him in spirit and truth. That's where the power is. That alone can bless and save a nation. Okay, pastor, so we just sit around and worship and let the nation fall apart. I mean, that's a logical conclusion of what you're saying. Just worship. Is God capable of rescuing a people without a physical resolution? Regardless of the tyranny or depravity of any government power, is God able to save a people? Just ask Pharaoh. Three million people walked out of his country and his control. And there wasn't a single shot heard around the world. Again, I'm not ditzing the revolution but not a shot was fired by a single Jew. God saved the nation of the Jews. God saved Israel. Now they were in a position they could do nothing to save themselves. Maybe we need to get there. Maybe that's part and parcel of why God's allowing what's going on in our country that we get to a point where we have no hope in man and no hope in government and no possibility of being saved except by the Lord. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Verse 16. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it anyone does it deliver anyone by its great strength. And you military personnel, it's not tanks, it's not ships, it's not planes, that will protect and keep you. It is your faith in the Lord. And it is the presence of the Lord with you, deployed at home wherever you are. Behold, verse 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope for His loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He's our help and our shield, for our heart rejoices in Him because we trust in His holy name. Again, our hope is never in the movements of man. Our hope is only and always in the Maker of man. And He is the bastion of praise. He is our fortress. He is our stronghold. But let's get personal. The basis 
of praise is a global thing, a worldwide recognition, the work of His hands, the word of His mouth that you can see everywhere. And in the cross, which was for the whole world. The bastion of praise has a national flavor to it because the hope that we have for strength is only in being a nation whose God is the Lord. But there's a personal aspect of this that you've just got to see. And I call it the beauty of praise. The beauty of praise. Why worship? The beauty of praise. Verse 22. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. Be upon us. Let your grace cover us. Let your grace clothe us. Go back to verse 1. Sing for joy in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. The word becoming in the Hebrew there is nave. And nave simply means comely, winsome. We don't use the word winsome enough, I think, in our culture. My, you look winsome this morning. It means lovely. Nave, beautiful. Praise is lovely to the upright. Praise is beautiful on the worshiper. That, that is the upright, the one who's loving, who the Lord's loving kindness is upon. I, I want you to see something. Over in the Song of Solomon, and this is a couple books over, but in chapter 1, the young Shulamite bride is speaking in this first chapter, and she says something. Listen to this. Chapter 1, verse 5. I am black but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, don't stare at me because I am swarthy, for the sun has burned me, my mother's sons were angry with me, they made me caretaker of the vineyards, but I am not taking care of my own vineyard. And tell me, O you whom my soul loves, where do you pasture? Where do you make lie down at noon? For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? This is so amazing to me. This is the bride, and she is absolutely gorgeous, but she doesn't know it. She's making excuses. I'm black but lovely. Don't don't look at me as as one of the... Why should I be veiled by the flocks? I'm... She's not sure. She doesn't recognize her own beauty. No, it takes, it takes the bridegroom to tell her that. Verse 8. If you yourself do not know most beautiful among women, go forth on the trail of the flock and pasture your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. To me, my darling, you are like my mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. Now, yes, he did compare her to a horse, but it was, it was poetic. Didn't mean she had big teeth. It was just, you know, a poetic way of saying she's a beautiful woman. <laughs> he says, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of beef. And he will go on in the Song of Solomon just to say, oh, she's all I ever wanted. She is stunning, comely, winsome, lovely, beautiful, nave. And the bridegroom has to tell the bride so that she'll begin to recognize her own beauty in herself. And there's some great parallel there that the Lord has to keep telling you that you're saved, that you're covered by my grace, that you're beautiful to me, and that we and the bride start to maybe believe just a little bit. But I, I okay. And the Lord's saying, no, you're beautiful. What's the point? The beauty of praise is that as I worship, it draws out my true beauty in the Lord. The psalmist says, praise is becoming to the upright. It's beautiful. Some of you guys go, oh, I don't really want to be beautiful. You know, Handsome? That's cool. Okay then, praise makes you handsome. Alright? Praise makes you stugly. Whatever you need, guys. Praise makes us beautiful, and it's as we were intended to be at creation. The crown of creation. Remember Psalm 8? The glory of man? The exaltation of man? The Lord lifting man up above all other created things because He says, Man, woman, you're beautiful to me. And as we worship God, we begin to look good. I need that. We begin to look beautiful. Christina Aguilera 
wrote an anthemic song, especially for young teen girls. In the chorus she sang, You're beautiful, no matter what they say. Words can't bring me down. She said with a piercing on her face and her hair kind of... Anyway, she says, You're beautiful in every single way. Words can't bring me down. And I heard that song and thought, That's a nice sentiment, but it's not true. You're not beautiful in every... Tell it to a 16-year-old girl ready to go out on a date when she has Mount St. Helens appear on her nose. You're beautiful. Not so much. And it doesn't take much for us to be less beautiful than we try to be as we pack on the makeup and the clothes and the hairstyles and all the stuff that we do in the morning. My friends, it's a losing battle. And it's going to get more intense in the last days. Do you realize this? 2 Timothy 3.1 tells us, realize this, in the last days difficult times will come for men will be lovers of self. Oh, oh. (laughs) The cosmetics market in America is a multi-billion dollar industry because people want to look better than they really look. And we all want to look, we all want what other people have. Have you noticed that too? We all want, my hair, not, John Adelot, that's the hair that I want. <laughs> not this. You know, this morning we're sitting here in prayer. And Shelby opens her eyes and she goes, wow, it's bright in here. And Marilee says, yeah, Rick's head. <laughs> of it all. <laughs> what brings out the beauty that we were created to have? Worship does. This is where we start to look, and not even necessarily to each other. I've seen pictures of me worshiping. It's, like, yeah, it's just not good. But to the Lord, the truth of who I am and the beauty of what I was created to be emerges. And you know, I start to feel loved and strong and I start to feel beautiful in the worship of the Lord. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He hath made everything beautiful in its time. And praising Him, worshiping is the key. It's not just cosmetic. As we worship the Lord, He draws out that genuine, pure, God-given beauty that He created in the first place, redeemed in the second place, and now invites us to walk in. Does anyone know what it was that introduced the whole concept of ugliness into the world? If you think back, we're told, and this ridiculous hypersensitivity to our bodies or our look. We're told back in Genesis 2.25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were good with it. They were cool with their bodies. They didn't have anything. Not, oh, that mole. Just. That scar. It's just. Ooh. They were okay with it. Not ashamed. Completely comfortable in their skin as the crown and beauty of God's creation. And then in Genesis 3, the woman was deceived. And the man dove in. And together, what was the first thing they did after they sinned? Cover up. Cover up. The first cover up, right there. Genesis 3, 7, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loin coverings because sin introduced shame into the world of humanity. But praise is becoming to the upright. Get that connection. That last verse in the first verse. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, let your grace be upon us. And as His grace covers me, suddenly I am one of the upright. I am back to a Genesis 2 position. And I got nothing... I'm not saying come to church naked. Please. (laughs) Because we all know where that would go. Praise is becoming to the upright. We who have been washed clean from sin by the grace of God are now made beautiful as we put on praise. 
Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. What is your covering? Because grace is available and praise is becoming. And that's what God would have us wear. That to me, in a nutshell, is the significance, the importance, the reason why we worship. Basis of worship, what He's done. You know, the, the, the bastion of worship, the strength for life, and the beauty of worship that He draws out who He created us to be as we worship Him. Would you rather sew on fig leaves? And by the way, those things are itchy. Uncomfortable, scratchy. Would you rather sow fig leaves in shame or worship God in beauty? One last thought. Jesus was stripped bare and naked as they tried to shame Him and it didn't work. It did not work. Hebrews 12.2 said, For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He went to the cross without covering, with His clothes at the base of the cross as the Roman soldiers gambled for them. He became uncovered that you and I might become covered and then could worship the Lord forever. It's marvelous. Let's pray together. Father, You call us beautiful by Your grace. And we have a hard time believing it. But it sure does sound good to hear from Your heart. And I pray, Father, that that covering of Your grace, Your loving kindness, would make us aware of who we are in You. I pray, Father, we might draw strength from worship. We might recognize You as God, whether our nation chooses to or not, Lord. That we as a people would never come out from under the covering of God the Lord. Father, for all that You've done, Your Word and Your works, we praise You and worship You today. Help us to shift our minds to that way of thinking. To be a people of worship. Service, yes, Father. And and out there doing good things in the world, of course. And engaged and involved and active proclaiming Your Word. But Father, may we be a people who physically bow down, lift up, fall down, and worship You actively as You have called us to in Jesus' name. Amen.